Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current, classic, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our very special guest tonight, two-time Academy Award-winning visual effects artist and film historian Robert Skotak. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Hi. Great to be here. Great, great to have you. Saturday night. <laughs> it's always Saturday night, even if you're watching this at four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I have to start by asking you. It's kind of kind of become kind of a thing for me. Uh, when you were a little boy, did you have a favorite movie theater? Well, there were a few. You know, I was uh, raised in, in Detroit, um, and there were a couple theaters that we could walk to. Even as a six-year-old, we used to walk to the theater by itself. There was the Kramer Theater on Michigan Avenue and the Senate Theater on Michigan Avenue. And th those were where we saw, a you know, most of the the stuff that had a huge influence on us. Well, like like me watching those uh, science fiction and horror double features, they called them kitty matinees in those days. I assume that the term kitty matinee applied to the Detroit theaters as well. Well, there were matinees, yeah. I mean, I saw the first started seeing the movies uh, before I even knew what matinees were or before I think they even started in the Detroit area. Um, because I was seeing films like Destination Moon on their first release um, and uh, you know, any number of movies. King Kong I saw on a re-release. And uh, I had seen uh, The War of the Worlds at a boys club. Didn't even know what it was. We saw War of the Worlds at a boys club. But, uh, the, you know, I figured I'd never see it again. This is in, what, summer of 53. And lo and behold, a few months later, the Kramer Theater has something called a matinee. And what are they showing but War of the Worlds? And that was the first film I ever saw at a matinee. And what was your impression? Well, I mean, you know, saying War of the Worlds just, you know, kind of blew our minds. I mean, you know, I think the expression, you know, blow your mind came from watching War of the Worlds because uh, everybody I know who saw that film was just uh, totally taken with it. Um, I mean, prior to that, I had seen Destination Moon when I was two years old, and I was really impressed with that. I was totally up for astronomy and space at a very young age so i was um, as we were walking to the boys club not knowing what war of the worlds was we were sort of talking with uh with my brother dennis and two of our friends our neighbors we were conjecturing like uh what is war of the worlds is that a, um, a world war ii movie we figured it was a world war ii movie but we were hoping it was something that we used to call space movies we didn't have the term science fiction uh, we were hoping it was a space movie, something with astronomy or spaceships in it, and of course it was. And wow, <laughs> it took uh, a lot to recover from that. <laughs> now, the as I recall, that Invaders from Mars was released the same year, correct? Yeah, it was released. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact relationship was in terms of the month, 
Um, but we also saw Invaders from Mars. We saw it at the Senate Theater in around the same time. Uh, and um, again, you know, that was a movie we figured we'd never see again. It was long before, you know, videotape and even uh, these movies would show up many, many years later on TV. But, um, you know, that was another, you know, you know, landmark, I guess, in our lives, seeing Invaders of Mars, War of the Worlds. Those were biggies. Now, I, I, I've said many times in the podcast that I did. I was not a very brave preteen. I mean, I uh, at six or seven, if something horrific came on the screen, I just ran out to the lobby. I, I couldn't handle horror movies. Uh, I think science fiction I could, I could get into because often the army was involved and. I loved army movies a lot, so when army guys were opening, you know, Day the Earth Stood Still, or even the the um, the, the saucer troops on Forbidden Planet, uh, they, they had gave me a little bravery. Did you? Were you pre a pretty easygoing uh, viewer, or did you freak out a little bit? Well, uh, you know, the horror stuff was pretty scary. Like that Martian coming in the house in War of the Worlds was um, pr pretty intimidating largely because of the way it was shot, you know, the shadows creeping on the wall and what the heck is it, you know. I mean, it made not a lot of sense story-wise. Like, why would this unarmed creature come into the house, you know, into the house of the enemy? But that was something I thought about years later. But the thing that um, when I was a little kid, I, you know, was shortly after the war, so the soldiers would show up and, and at a matinee, all the kids would cheer and like, you know, whatever. And I'm like, shut up, shut up. I want to hear, you know, they're, they're cheering over the dialogue. And so I was the obnoxious little kid who's like, shut up, uh, just watch the movie. <laughs> but it, it, it sure says a lot about, you know, uh, how the military was uh, adored uh, for obvious good reasons after World War II. Um, you know, my dad was in the military. He was in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, I, it's not like I had anything against the military. I just want, I want to watch the movie. Like, okay, go home and cheer. So. Well, I, you know, I'm a little younger than you, so I, I, I think I was born six years after you. But I remember everything in the 50s when I was starting to be of movie-going age was – World War II oriented. There were films, there were television shows, there were documentaries, there were comic books. In fact, most of you know, my friends were reading DC and Superman. I was reading Our Army at War and GI Combat. That was kind of my thing. Um, yeah. So well, we all had we all had the desire to have, you know, I I had typical gun toys and helmets and all that, but. You know, the other part of it is we were, you know, we would take crates and dress them up as control panels to pretend we were on spaceships, but with the, you know, my brother and I, and but with other kids, we would play Army. You know, <laughs> that was, that's what you did, at, you know, at that and time. The, now, given that you became a consummate model maker later, were you a model maker as a kid? Yeah, I was way into, I loved the, the um, 
you know, because it was the beginning of the space age, that was a huge influence. That's how I got into science fiction movies was because of the interest in rocketry and astronomy. So uh, that's when, like, model kits of, um, you know, ICBMs and Atlas missiles and uh, Jupiter, see, I'm thinking of some of the early ones we got. Uh, but, but it was very discouraging period of time and this probably only makes sense to anybody who's model builders but at the time they had the kind of glue you had to work with to stick the models together was awful i mean it was awful stuff it was very hard to work with and it was frustrating you know we just frustrated trying to make these models because um, we didn't have the kind of tools we later discovered like solvents that would allow you to make very invisible uh, glue seams um, you know, there were plastic solvents and those sorts of things. But yeah, we had those kits. We bought, you know, bunches of those and then sometimes doctored them and filmed them, you know, take pictures of them, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, uh, I had a, a huge model collection until my parents uh, allowed me to purchase my first BB gun. And then I, 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 <laughs> I basically took apart my models uh, with shot. Um, now, did, did you, um, now being that you would eventually be in visual effects and everything, did you study art in school? Well, school was kind of a distraction, you know, as far as that goes, because when we were little kids, um, you know, I figured I was going to make movies. It was the closest thing we could get to being, you know, going into outer space. So when we were five or six, you know, my brother's five, Dennis is five years older. And uh, so he sort of took the lead, and he was into photography. I was a little more into the art end of it. So we'd start building little miniature landscapes, um, you know, like lunar landscapes, kind of based on Destination Moon, that that sort of a thing. Uh, but because we had we didn't have any money or the means, we had this idea to do sort of a mix of what comic books were. And what later be called uh, would be called prumetis, which are photographic comic books. Uh, these were popular in, in Europe. Uh, we didn't know about them, but we found out about them later. Uh, prumetis were things where they would take uh, frame blowups, enlargements of you know from movies like Conquest of Space, This Island Earth, and put them in a comic book format. So you'd have the speech bubbles, you know, and all that with pictures from the actual scenes from the movie but our idea was like let's get models take pictures of them and take pictures of us in costumes and cut and paste them together and re-photograph it and let's make a book like in comic book format uh where we could do all the special effects and everything in in, in photographs and still photographs and we started doing that and um, then we got a movie camera and you know we started making movies and did you end up going to university as well? I uh, went to uh, U of M, University of Michigan, for a while studying film, but we were already starting to make films. I was making educational films out of um, high school. And, uh, you know, we did, I may have mentioned, I did a version, of, we did a version of the time machine, um, which was shot in the cinemascope format in regular eight millimeter this was like a 30 minute movie with sound etc back in 63 or 64 
And when I was in high school, uh, you know, I'd spend study hall storyboarding and, uh, you know, talking to kids, talking kids into like being in the movie. <laughs> you know, back then people thought, what do you mean making movies? Nobody made movies. <laughs> so, but, you know, I, I was, you know, I was studying literature and, and zoology and things like that. And I, I went for so long and I, I, it was interfering with making movies. <laughs> you know, I, I dropped out after being at U of M for a year or so. Well, t- tell tell me about this time machine thirty minute exercise. Uh, uh, first of all, did you make a time machine? Yeah, yeah, I was throwing stuff. At, you know, we have a basement. Uh, you know, people in in the Midwest, a lot of people have uh, basements, and that was our workshop. So um, we worked down there, but we had no money. You know, it was all from paper routes, which is very little money. So I would get very frustrated because I was the one that had to make the time machine and uh, I was usually the one that was responsible for making the sets or costumes and that sort of thing. My brother was the camera guy and uh, we had a friend who was a later became or soon after became a radio uh, announcer and uh, he'd be the lead actor and, and, and then I who am not an actor would take parts and Etc. Uh, Etc. Et um, actually, there was there was a guy who later became a a, a big, uh, very famous judge in Detroit. I don't know if he still is, and um, he was conned into being an actor in, in this movie too. He'd probably be embarrassed to know uh, that this thing had a life beyond, uh, you know, something done in 1963. But uh, yeah, we had gla- we had matte paintings and uh, miniatures and all kinds of you know uh, we had to make Morlocks, all that. And were they blonde like in the original? Oh, the Morlocks. No, the Morlocks are the. Uh, I mean, the, you know, that's the, right. They're they're not the uh, the uh, the uh, Eloy. The Eloy were the blonde ones. Although the Morlocks, they had kind of light hair too, as I recall. Uh, well, they did. Ours had uh, all I could find were black wigs. So we have these we have these Morlock masks that you could buy, which I think if I had them now they'd be worth a lot on eBay. Um, stumble across those; those just happen to be available, and I cut them so that their mouths would move, and I uh, stuck wigs on them. But they're basically just they were just plastic, you know, Halloween masks, and we use burlap like potato sacks for the costumes for the Morlocks. I mean, you know, when they're lit. Kept in the dark, it looked okay. Uh, but the big problem was we weren't actors. I mean, I, I had to take a part, you know. Uh, we couldn't find a girl who could, you know, who had any dramatic talent at all. So we said, okay, let's make it a, a, a young kid. And that was me. So I played, <laughs> played Weena's part. Uh, you were Weena? I, <laughs> I forget what I was called. I was the head of the Eloy. Oh, that's uh, funny. But we, that's but we had, you know, one of the kids down the block uh, later became a very famous uh, baseball star. He was rookie of the year for the, I think, the Boston Red Sox, Bernie Carbo. So he was one of the, uh, he was one of the Eli. Oh my goodness! Uh, now there's a bit of trivia. Yeah, yeah. So Bernie Carbo, who uh, uh, had a long career in film, I mean, film in uh, baseball, uh, started out as a 
as an actor in one of our movies. Well, the, the time machine, I think, for many of us was kind of a just a, a, a ultimate film experience. I remember it was one of the first times I remember standing in line for a movie theater and at a movie theater and. It's amazing. That movie was made 62 years ago, and it still plays today like it did the first time I watched it. It just, just plays and plays. How long did you stay in Michigan? Well, I was there for quite a while. I moved out to L.A. in 76. Actually, I arrived on September 1st, 1976, and it was uh, pouring rain. Bigger the odds. Show up in sunny California. And huge thunderstorms that in, that whole weekend. Um, I had not two cents to rub together, um, and I wound up sleeping on the beach. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was that's what it was like. Um, this sounds like this. I, I was, uh, was this a spontaneous thought to move out to California to get further in the business? You by by seventy six, you had started to work on films, right? Well, yeah, but it was very spotty. You know, uh, uh, Elaine Edford, uh, who is my partner with our production company, Forward Productions, uh, you know, we were married for, for many years. Uh, she, uh, she and I were managing an apartment complex in um, Ann Arbor, which is where we were living. And um, we were, uh, you know, getting film work here and there. It was sporadic. And it, this came to be the point, like, if we're going to get really serious about this and stop working as, you know, managers of apartment complexes, um, really have to make the move to California. We thought about uh, going to New York for a while, uh, but I figured for what we wanted to do, um, you know, L.A. made a lot more sense. Uh, so it was just a practical move, you know, this, if you want to make movies kind of where you have to be. Um but, you know, it was able to put in so much money to drive across country with a car full of stuff. And um, friends I knew out here were, weren't uh, home the weekend I arrived. So I wound up, uh, you know, stayed, slept on a beach, woke up in, in the, near the Santa Monica Pier with a, like a road grader coming down the beach. You know, I felt the rumble. I said, what's that? And there's, <laughs> here comes this big machine heading toward me. I go, I better move. Um, yeah, that was my first weekend. Was pretty horrendous. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't know Bill Malone, did you? I knew uh, vaguely of him through Bob Burns uh, magazine, which uh, Fantastic Monsters uh, Bill had uh, contributed a, uh, a makeup. Uh, I think it was called the Devil's Worship Worship uh, Workshop in that magazine, and he had contributed a. You know the making of a mask or, or something like that. Yeah, uh, for, no, for, I, I, I didn't. I didn't know him. Uh, yeah, I, the listening. I wish I had. I wish I had. We could have pulled resources. Well, the, some of the listeners remember that I interviewed Bill, and he's a, a director. Did the remake of House on Haunted Hill and a lot of great television work, and we're still very close friends. He was also from Michigan. He was from Lansing, so he was a right. fellow Michiganer. Uh, so when you get to LA, what is your what would you consider was your most uh, uh, your best break to get things started? Well, oh, oh, 
I haven't really thought about. Well, you know, I used to do um, a lot of newspaper work doing uh, pay stubs. Um, I had done some of that for offset printing back in Michigan, so I applied. Um, I figured just get a job, so I went. I got a job at a local newspaper. I think it was in Torrance. They put out like four different newspapers, like the uh, Manhattan Beach or whatever, and I was doing uh, all the layouts and pay stubs and the typesetting for that, <clears throat> and then poking around, uh, just getting to know people, and uh, wound up doing educational films uh, for a while, set set uh, design and art direction, and some makeup uh, work, and I'm trying to think how. I got that connection. Um, I guess you just start meeting people, and somebody suggested me to a guy named Bernard Willits, who was doing educational films, and and that's where, uh, where yeah, I guess that's where I wound up doing that for a while, and um, and uh, gosh, and knowing Bob Burns was also a good connection. I knew who he was through his magazine. And, you know, when I first came out to L.A., uh, I was uh, – I, I had done a couple issues of my own magazine called Fantasine, and I uh, was very interested in uh, film history. <clears throat> and uh, so I was interviewing, you know, calling people, uh, people that you may know, like Al Nozaki, who was the, the art director on The War of the Worlds, and <clears throat> conducting these interviews. And uh, also people like Dennis Muren. Uh, who uh, was working on uh, Star Wars and had gone over to work on Close Encounters. Uh, people like Tom Sherman and Mike Miner, who were friends of Bob Burns, who were all very involved in the film business and the visual effects and art direction end of things. Uh, and uh, Bob Clark, uh, who had done a film way back in 1950 called The Man from Planet X, well, I was interested in his career. He had done quite a bit of science fiction. And um, I think through Bob Clark, uh, he may have introduced me to, to uh, the uh, sort of these educational film people. He also introduced me to Bob Burns. Okay, not, not, like, not that I'm recalling him. Bob Clark said, you, you need to go over and see this guy, Bob Burns. And I said, well, I know of Bob Burns. Uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of meandering all over the point, but but that's kind of what happened when I came to LA. I was meandering all over the point and calling people, and you know, things just sort of connected after a while. So one of your first cre your first credit, according to IMDb, is whoops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> as as my phone goes off, sorry about that, Ben. Um, you worked on a movie, a TV movie called Starstruck. Was oh yeah. That was that true? Actually, it, yeah, although it says it's only 30 minutes long, so I wonder if that was a TV pilot or was that an actual series? Yeah, it was a TV pilot. It was originally called Pie in the Sky. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the off, the, uh, the, the, the guy who wrote it was um, Arthur Copet. Is that his name? It was a playwright? Yeah, writer was not... Arthur Copet, and the director uh, was Alfred Viola. Well, it was a pilot, and it was got the idea from the cantina scene in um, Star Wars. 
Uh, it was about a space station that was a stop-off point for all kinds of alien creatures. Um, and um, I can't quite remember the plot, but uh, I was hired to make some of the models of the space station. I didn't design the space station. I designed a couple of other ships and uh, worked on the miniatures of that. And uh, that was one of the first films to use uh, the Ultimat uh, Petro Vlahos's color difference system. And we're working with a guy named Chuck Serino uh, and the company was videography. And, uh, you know, it, again, it was all en route to, uh, you know, sort of finding your way and connecting uh, to people. Um, I'm not sure how I, you know, I'm lapsing and trying to remember how I connected with that. But I had done other work before that, but that was probably the first uh, thing that aired or got released theatrically on TV. Uh, well, you followed, that, you followed that with Battle Beyond the Stars. Wasn't that a, was that a Roger Corman? I'm trying to remember. Oh, oh are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I had come home uh, – from uh, the starstruck thing and thinking, what am I going to do? I don't have any work. Uh, I come home and Elaine Edford um, says, there was a phone call from a guy named Chuck Comiskey. And I called, you know, returned his call. And Chuck was heading up a Roger Corman movie called Battle Beyond the Stars. And he wanted to meet me and heard I was a model builder. How word had spread <laughs> to him, I have no idea. So I met Chuck, and uh, like a day or two later, it was April 2nd, 1979, I was working on Battle Beyond the Stars. I was uh, one of the first people to work on that. Um, and a week later, I talked to Chuck. I said, you, should, you know, he was looking for people. I said, you should talk to my brother Dennis because he's, uh, you know, a pretty good model builder, and he's a camera guy. So I hired, uh, hired Dennis about a week later. So, so it was just a handful of us at the very beginning. It was Mari Shalak, who was head of the model shop, Danny Bud Lewis, um, Campbell, me, and Denny. That was it. So, so walk, walk me through 1979 technology. You're assigned to make spaceships on Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, what kind of materials are you using? Are you taking, I always hear that, or I often hear that they take plastic model kits from from various things and they reuse them to create spaceships or are you um are you molding your own ships using plastic technology well we've tried to design things um around a, a lot of stuff that could be found to a certain extent um yes kit bashing was was sort of the thing to create all the the busy detail um that that uh had become identified with uh, science fiction spaceships on, on, on the screen. Um, I guess one of the early films to do that was 2001. You know, you had all these surfaces that had, all, you know, heavy texture to them. And a lot of that stuff comes from model kits, existing kits. And, but also you would cast, you know, you know we had mold some of these things and cast them to make multiple parts. Uh, so we were working with with a lot of that. 
uh, one of the you know one of the things that was uh, that you learned very quickly is to use uh, this solvent, this plastic uh, solvent called MEK methyl ethyl ketone, which you could inject with a syringe, and uh, it would fuse parts together without showing all the glue marks. And uh, so you know there were all these little tricks that we would use, and uh, there was so much model work that was needed for Battle Beyond the Stars um, that, you know, was the best possible tool, uh, because not only were we building uh, the models, uh, designing all that stuff, but we were uh, eventually, that led into uh, sort of designing the sets, designing the look of the planets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, so, three, 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 it, yeah, three years earlier, Star Wars kind of, uh, well, came on like gangbusters. I think it was the first time I heard about motion control photography. Were you yeah. influenced by the motion control and making your spaceships move? Well, we, we had a motion control system. You just had to have that system. We had something called the Elecon system, which was in, in a way similar to what Doug Trumbull was using. Um, it, it was a very accurate motion repeat system. Uh, it had a lot of bugs, so we fought with it a lot. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, a lot of motion control uh, was used and motion repeat systems that could do simple moves. Um, that's a whole other, you know, if you ask that question, and want to know all the details three hours later we'll still be talking about it <laughs> well you know Basically, it, yeah it was, you know it was all state of the art um and uh, i mean uh, you know the, the, the trick was we had so little you know roger was spending more money than normal and he had actually put together people who had background as opposed to just people who who knew nothing about film um, and were could be hired for very little money. They actually had to pay, he, Roger had to pay a little bit because he was hiring people who already had uh, experience uh, in, in the area. So I, I have no complaints. He paid us very well. We had uh, you know full medical and dental and you know it was. I had no complaints about working for Roger. He he was uh, um, however it was set up with Chuck Comiskey. Uh, you know, it was a very cool thing. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a little bit tangential, but in a movie like This Island Earth, which I know both of us love and you've studied and researched forever, when, when you, in 1955 or 1954, when they made that film and they're showing the, um, the spaceship heading for Metaluna, it's, it's, you know, in a starscape. And uh, I, I assume in those days, were, was that model hanging from the studio ceiling and you were moving it uh, in stop motion or were you just doing some kind of, how, how would you flow a model like that in 50s technology? Well, yeah, those models were rigged on, on wire rigs that um, had been developed for many years at Universal for flying uh, usually airplanes or jets. Um, and they were very sophisticated flying systems. Uh, they had actually worked out uh, a system. Uh, it was called a, a stork. It was an overhead rig that contained all of the lighting. 
uh, that would move with the actual model of the flying saucer would be, was rigged below, hanging as if a stork had been carrying a, a baby. <laughs> that was where the nickname came from. But um, so they would shoot that and then uh, pad out the wires, at least for most of the film. But one of the things that's interesting about this island Earth is that it used some of the very earliest motion repeat systems. Uh, so they were kind of ahead of the curve. Um, that's why they were able to do shots of the saucer coming from the far distance, coming at you and then disappearing into the distance. That was actually done with a motion repeat camera. It was done mechanically as opposed to with a computer. Um, and again, that's a long discussion. Um, well, maybe just best to leave that. Well, we're going to, I think I'm going to, I'm going to have you back and we're going to do it this island earth night. Cause I think we both have great love of that film for many reasons. Now, um, I want to talk about aliens, but I first, before we get into aliens, which is one of my all time favorite films, um, the transition to digital effects. When did you first like begin to realize that the future is now? Well, you know, um, I um, I think of the commercial that was done for the was it the, the representatives of the Tin Corporation. I'm I'm getting that all wrong, but it was it was something to do with um, the promotion of uh, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speculate too much, but it was a commercial that was done in the early '80s. I think it screened on the. Uh, Super Bowl or Rose Bowl or whatever, and it was this robotic female in kind of a lounge chair with, uh, I think, a like a martini glass. And um, when I saw that, you know, I knew it was created, uh, you know, it was all computer generated. I, I, that's it. That's the future. Everything is different. This is all going to change. Um, I had a little bit of a prevision of this because back in 1969 I had traveled with my uncle Richard um, to a uh, thing called Madness World which is a kind of a one of those world fair things and he was he was working for GM uh, in Detroit General Motors in Detroit and they were doing um, computer graphics of crashing cars testing cars in computers by smashing them into things and saying like what are the problems how will the car collapse etc cetera, etc cetera. So I was aware of all this potential of computer graphics uh, this was back in 1969 and uh, so when this tin uh, promotional thing showed up 82 83 or whenever it was I go well there it is uh, there's you can't stop this this is the way things are going to go. Um, but it was costly at the time. I think of The Last Starfighter was one of the few films to really jump into computer-generated uh, stuff or so early on, but it required, you know, like the, whatever, the, the power of Krell furnaces or whatever, uh, you know, whatever to um, be able to uh, generate that imagery. So I, I figured it would take a few years, but it was definitely up and coming. It was the thing. Well, we all were very impressed by Alien, 
uh, the Ridley Scott film from 79. I think it was another movie that kind of set the bar very high in terms of science fiction. And certainly in, in the wake of Star Wars and, and all of the films that followed Star Wars, there seemed to be an enormous leap forward in fantasy and science fiction. Um, tell us a little bit about how Aliens ended up uh, coming to you, or you coming to Aliens. Well, I, I do, I do have to say that Alien was uh, a, a huge favorite of mine. And what's interesting about Alien is that the visual effects for that film are actually pretty rudimentary. They're very simple. There isn't like motion control, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, to any extent that I've ever seen. It's uh, beautifully art directed. I mean, it, the film is meticulously carried out in terms of mood and atmosphere and to me that's a huge appeal of this kind of you know that kind of filmmaking um but um i had gotten a hold of a the script of maybe a year two years before the movie before alien had come out and i thought this is a film i want to work on this is the perfect movie i want to work on and it turns out oh find out that it's being shot in England and it's almost done you know, by the time I found out about it. So, you know, I, I always had a thing about that whole alien world and so lo and behold, in the mid-80s, turns out that Jim Cameron calls me and he is uh, up to direct sequel to Alien. Uh, now, did you know him? I knew Jim because uh, Chuck Comiskey at Undering Battle asked me to interview this these two guys who had come in from Orange County to see if they could be useful on Battle Beyond the Stars. Those two guys were Alec Gillis and Jim Cameron. So uh, I was the one that interviewed Jim. And I looked at some of his artwork, and then I started plotting Chuck. I said, we should hire these guys. You know, they're really talented. So... Of course, I knew Jim very well. Uh, we were in the trenches together on Battle Beyond the Stars, and then we worked again on the Galaxy of Terror, uh, which uh, Jim and I co-art uh, directed. He did the bulk of the live action, and I did all the uh, special effects and the planetary art direction. But we also did uh, uh, Escape from New York together. So we knew each other very well. Yeah, we, we were, uh, you know, comrades in arms. I don't know. But as a as a uh, art director, uh, and certainly his meticulousness on film sets with what he's making is just off the charts. Um, so aliens, aliens comes along, and uh, who, who got you in on this one? Well, well Jim, Jim uh, called me. Um, uh, I, I will skip where I was for various reasons at the time. I was working in, in visual effects. Um, you know, Chuck Comiskey started uh, a company that splintered off from, from uh, Roger, Roger Corman's effects deal. And I went and worked there for a few years on things like uh, oh, uh, Strange Invaders and... Um, Mel Brooks film, To Be or Not To Be, a couple other movies that will, shall we be nameless. 
and uh, then went to this other company, and we worked on Bill Malone's movie, Creatures. And uh, oh, well, worked work, work with Michael Nesmith on a project, on a thing called TV Parts. Anyway, so just you know, not big projects, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then Jim called, and he said he wanted me to read the script. I was up to do the sequel to Aliens, and uh, it wasn't called Aliens. It, I think it was called Alien 2. I read the uh, script under um, <laughs> practically under guard because the script was very being kept very quiet. And uh, he he was uh, in a position of he could direct the movie if he could bring it in for you know like fifteen million, sixteen million dollars, something like that. I guess Fox had budgeted. Originally at about thirty million, um, with another director. But they, but Jim really wanted to do it. They told they told him, as I understand it from Jim, that uh, they had told him if you could do it for twelve million, yeah, you can direct it. Of course, he had written the screenplay, and he he, he uh, you know he had a certain cachet. And he felt, well, I can't quite do it for 12, but I could do it for maybe 15 or 16. So um, he got together with us because he knew that we knew all the tricks, how to get around budget problems. I mean, we killed ourselves on Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy of Terror. We, you know, and, and even Escape from New York. We used every trick in the book uh, to try to... Um, Get as much on the screen for as little money as possible. And uh, now, when you, you know, there are, when you say that, when you say every trick in the book, are you talking about uh, trying to do effects in camera as opposed to spending enormous monies on on, on after post production effects? Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, that, that's sort of the the heart of it. But you know, like when Ridley Scott did did some stuff on on Alien, uh, Aliens, uh, you know, he'd put a mirror down the end of the hallway to uh, you know reflect at an angle, make the hallway look like it was much longer. That's sort of a a, a simple trick um, of that nature. And we would do, you know, we had a lot of that same mentality, um, you know. Uh, Using forced perspective, using uh, sheets of glass, even if you, if you couldn't find a beam split or large enough to reflect, uh, to combine two images in camera instead of doing it optically. Um, that you know that sort of thing. Also, how to um, treat miniatures uh, you know, in a way that would make them look larger and more convincing than they might ordinarily be. Uh, by finding ways to sharpening the shadows, to give away soft shadows uh, on, on miniatures or, or shadows that are not aligned properly with the lighting source. So, uh, you know, he knew that we knew a lot of that sort of a thing could help give the film a, a better look uh, given the restrictions. Um, and that we were also crazy. We would try stuff. <laughs> You know that we were willing to try stuff and, and you know just push craziness. Say you know this stupid idea just might look pretty cool on camera. Well, um, you know I, I 
adore this film. I've probably seen it 50 times. I mean, I was reading recently that one of your early challenges was that there was no surviving model of the alien ship and that you had to design it based on actually watching the old movie. Well, um, I think that might be two different things fused together. The derelict ship was, uh, from the original film, had been uh, given to Bob Burns. Um, and it had, you know, it was outside. It had kind of fallen to pieces. So we brought that in and re-sculpted it uh, based on photographs, matched it as close as possible to what it looked like in the original film. Uh, and, uh, I mean, a certain amount of it was still was still there not all of it had had disintegrated disintegrated uh, i i should mention that it was like a fiberglass shape that had uh clay uh sculpted on top of it so it was pretty fragile stuff so we restored it and we reshot scenes of the of the of that derelict ship in in the states uh we shot that stuff in the states we shot plates uh, in the States uh, before we left for England. The rest of the film was shot uh, in, at Pinewood Studios. Um, but the other thing is that the uh, narcissist model was gone. It disappeared. I'm sorry, which uh, model? Needed, which model? The narcissist. That, the narcissist, that's a shuttle craft that Sigourney uh, Ripley uh, escapes in at the end of Alien. Oh, it was called the Narcissist? Yeah, Narcissist. Oh, interesting, interesting. It, it, had dis it had disappeared. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's ever been recovered. Probably, I'm sure there's aficionados out there that know whether it's been found or not. But we have to make a, a new one, and it was based on photographs, as many photographs and images we could grab from the original uh, film. And... Uh, model builder by the name of Jay Ross. I will mention Jay because we had hired him on Galaxy of Terror as a just a young, talented kid who uh, wound up, you know, doing stuff like recreating that ship, <laughs> that shuttlecraft for, for aliens. Um, what was, what was anyway, your... Yeah, and that, what's that? What was your inspiration for the Sulaco? Well, the Sulaco was Sid Mead's design. Uh, we got, you know, uh, Sid Mead is uh, probably the premier designer of, of, of future technology and future imagery at the time. I think he was also the highest paid guy doing this sort of thing. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, what I had heard is he was only on Aliens for a short period of time because he was so expensive and uh, he designed a few sets he designed the Sulaco uh, he took a stab at designing the uh, let's say one of the drop the drop ship or the APC uh, I will be chastised for not remembering this I know this but I just can't remember it at any rate um, but his designs weren't used for, for the APC. Uh, but the Sulaco was his. And uh, so we had to interpret these 
kind of very impressionistic drawings. I mean, it was the Sulaco, yes. It was definitely the shape and everything, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Pat McClung, Dennis, my brother Dennis and I were the ones who did all the detailing uh, kind of after hours. Because as it turned out in England, people were, we couldn't find people who were used to doing that kind of microscopic dealing, detailing uh, that was fairly common, uh, you know, in, you know, back in the States. So we, that was a hands-on uh, detailing job. Was it, was it, a, uh, uh, took a while to get uh, tra transition into working in the British system there, or were you hitting the ground running? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure they were too keen on Americans coming there, especially generally we were on the younger side. And most people who were in the position of being supervisors and, quote, unquote, bossing people around were, uh, you know, you, you tend to be older people. Not that I was that young at the time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so there was that. We were also in a heavy heavily unionized situation. Pinewood was, you had to have certain people only did certain things. And, uh, you know, for visual effects shops back in the States, for the way we were used to, especially with Roger Corman, were very blurred roles. If you could do a matte painting, you could also build a model, you could also photograph something, you did that. You did everything. But there, we, you know, it was very hard to detail the models uh, in terms of painting, the, you know, like say painting the, the models. They wanted a union, union painters. And, but there wasn't such a thing really at Pinewood as a union model painter. So they were scenic artists. Um, so uh, that was a, a difficult situation. How do we you know, very often when you're photographing a model, you're photographing the surface, the paint surface, the sheens, you know, all that sort of a thing. Uh, how a model reflects light is really a key to how believable they are. So um, it, we knew that. And we're saying, well, this is one of the key things that we do is we, we do the final finish, uh, uh, you know, the, the surface uh, texture. So uh, one of the workarounds that I had is I had brought colored pencils and gra a lot of graphite with me. And uh, there was no union rule against doing that. So Pat McClung, who was a very top-end model painter, he had worked at Boss, uh, you know, uh, he, you know, at painting models like the Klingon for the original, the first Star Trek movie. Um, so uh, we used colored pencils and graphite and all those sorts of things to detail the models. And they sort of shrugged and go, well, okay, I guess we can't stop those guys. One of my favorite uh, – so, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so there was a certain amount of like battling the union, battling, you know, Pinewood wanted to charge for every tiny little thing you might ever want to do. Um, so for about four or five months at the beginning of the film, it was a it was a battle, and it slowly settled in, and we got to know everybody, and it and it became more of a friendship and a camaraderie and a and a work and a group effort, and it it the final five or so months of the miniature fact shoot uh, started to you know 
uh, everything started to come together. So you you made some rather elaborate miniatures. Uh, I I I I've watched the movie. I don't have the most uh, specific eye for these things, but my when um, when the Marines arrive in their dropship and uh, they're about to enter the um, the facility. Uh, I, I gather that a lot of the scenes we see preparatory to the Marines actually running up to the uh, entrance are miniature, correct? Correct, yes. And just be beautiful, the, 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 the use of the rain and the uh, atmosphere. I, I guess one of the fortunate things you guys had was you were working with Peter Lamont, who also, uh, I think he also... Uh, was nominated for an Oscar that year for Aliens. And of course he went on to do Titanic and was well known from all the James Bond movies. I bet he was a pleasure to work with. Yeah, you know, I, I have, uh, again, we, we have these, uh, re, you know, the, the sort of bumping heads with the union stuff that it, Pinewood was imposing, but, but uh, Peter was great. His brother, Michael, who had passed away, uh, he was terrific, very, very personable, likable, hardworking people. Um, something to keep in mind is that, uh, like the colony complex, largely was designed by Ron Cobb and Jim Cameron. The uh, atmosphere processor was designed specifically by Jim Cameron. He made the drawings of it. Now, we have to make more drawings for some of the details, but generally... Um, a lot of the stuff we were doing were Jim Cameron's designs and a certain amount of Ron Cobb's designs. Uh, Jim designed the dropship. That's all, that's all his. Um, the, was, uh, was, there, was, our, there a, was there a big miniature of the atmosphere processor? Was that a big miniature? That was a pretty sizable miniature, yes. That that is actually my favorite model in the entire film. That whole uh, shape of that and the entranceway and all the pipe work and everything is just uh, unbelievable. I just really, personally, really love it. It was a hell of a horrible thing to build because it was all angles um, and, uh, you know, compound uh, curves and angles. Um, the, there was a scenic artist, uh, an old-time scenic artist, and I wish I could remember his name, uh, who had to paint a large version of it. We had like a 12-foot-tall painting of it that we used in the background for some shots. And he said, and this is a guy who'd been in the business for a million years, he was scratching his head. He said it was the hardest thing he ever had to ever paint. He would just defy the painting. Because again, the complexity of round shapes, you know, going around all kinds of corners and angles, um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it was a torturous model to build, but um, you know, it's a cool design. You know, that's now, uh, when the APC comes off the dropship and enters the. Um Actually, I'm trying to remember. I think the APC was already on the ground because it came out uh, at the center. But when the APC goes into the atmosphere processor heading for to find the, the lost citizens, that's also a miniature, correct? Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, 
Yeah, it's a combination. You know, when you get to the atmosphere processor, you know, they pull up, and it's, you know, matte painting, then it's a miniature uh, one scale, then it's a miniature of another scale as they go through the door. Then they go down a real hallway, and then they crash down a miniature uh, ramp into the lower levels. All that stuff on the ramp as they go down, crashing around, that's all miniature. Um, and when they break out, crash through the door, and, uh, and crash through the landscape, that's all That's all miniature. Horrendously you know, difficult stuff, multiple takes, because... You know, when you shoot this stuff, everything has to wind up in a certain way. Everything has to align and, and work just right. And one of the problems we had is the lights kept blinking out. It was some kind of radio. You know, these were our, our radio-controlled models. And we were getting a lot of uh, radio frequency interference. So right in the middle of a take, the model would stop or the lights would blink because of some outside radio interference. And stuff like that would just cost a fortune, uh, and it would just utterly ridiculous for stupid reasons. I mean, you know, frustrating reasons. Like, why are we doing 20 takes just because the light keeps shutting off or the model keeps stopping right in its tracks right in the middle of the take? And, how, uh, many, how, many, how many APCs did you build? Uh, there was two of them. There were two of them. It was a 12-scale uh, and a 6-scale. Uh, and the uh, they did you know uh, quite a few shots alternating with the full size one. The, the full size one was a uh, originally an air tug that I think weighed something like sixty five tons. This was a uh, you know this flat very flat very heavy vehicle that would tow airplanes out onto runways. So they bought one of those and they uh, they managed to cut out about. 35 tons of its weight and then dressed it over and it became the full size um, full size APC. Now the you also had miniature work within the structure when uh, when the soldiers are heading for the colonists and later when Ripley is going to encounter the queen the those, those corridors and and places with the with the alien um, excretions, I don't even know what you call that art direction. Obviously, all that creepy um, stuff. The acid. The acid. The, those acid walls with all of that H.R. Giger-esque, uh, whatever you call those um, organic uh, walls. Uh, that was also miniature as well. Um. Well, you know, a, a, a lot of a lot of dressing was done on this location. It was Acton Power Plant, um, so a certain amount of that existed, you know, full size. We built uh, inside the atmosphere processor, if that's what you're referring to, the entrance way. We built the miniature, and uh, then there was the ramp we had built uh, that went from an upper level inside the atmosphere processor to a lower level of the atmosphere processor. That whole ramp, that whole corridor, we dressed that all in miniature, built that all in miniature. Um, but we also did a shot that was an establishing shot where they first see this cocooning, I guess is what it was called, uh, 
where they kind of look around. There's like this tilt down where they're looking up at the ceiling, and then they kind of walk off into the distance. Um, and that was actually the first shot we did in the whole movie. Uh, day one was a hanging miniature. Uh, and there's endless stories that I could tell about that whole deal, which maybe we'll do on another time. But uh, in order to extend that set, to really make it look impressive, a certain amount of it had been built at this Acton power station. But for the upper levels and, and an extension uh, overhead uh, in all directions, overhead was all miniature. Um, and again, that was the first day of shooting. Wow. And it was actually done with one of the actors within, so close to the camera, they were inside of the hanging miniature, meaning they're, uh, if they had uh, walked uh, without lightly dipping their head, they would have bumped the miniature. Um, so there's a whole story because it was a different actor uh, that Michael Bean replaced very shortly after that first day of shooting, um, and I can't remember who the original. Yeah, actor yeah, I read remember. about. I read about it. James Remar. James Remar. Yeah, he was right there, and uh, you know it was tricky because he had these white seals uh, on his shoulders, and they were shining up into the miniature, and we also had little like little lights that we were mimicking those you know, what reflections you would expect. We were mimicking that while he was moving around with the miniature. And then he turned and walked away. He had to dip his head slightly, like, you know, an inch, to get under the miniature and walk into the distance. Then after he was let go, uh, they wound up uh, cutting the, the head of that shot. So you just see him walking into the distance. Uh, so that's actually James Umar in the movie. But, um, you know, it's Michael Bean in the story. I mean, he's the one that replaced him. Right, right. How long did you work on, uh, 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 how long were you over in England? Well, in, in total, I worked on the film for 15 months. Uh, I was in England for a year. Our shoot uh, the effect shoot lasted nine months. It started in the very beginning of September of uh, 1985, and I finished uh, right at the end of May. 86. Now, Bob, did uh, you did you get involved in making miniature aliens, or were those mostly live action people? No, we had uh, we had. Um, hired uh, Doug Beswick uh, to make um, Phil Natara, I think is his name, uh, to make um, the miniature um, queen and a miniature power loader. Oh. All the standard, all the standard issue aliens were all, you know, stuntmen. Uh, you know, the the, the human size uh, aliens were stunt people. The uh, power loader um, and the uh, alien queen were built in miniature, um, cable operated. They were built in the States and then shipped to us where we did some additional detailing. Um, and out of 
I think out of Stan Winston's shop, they made a couple of other, um, they took Doug Beswick's molds and made, or pulled new molds and made uh, a, a couple of other queens that we needed. We needed a floppy queen that we could just drop out of the airlock at the end. And um, we needed another alien queen for a couple of shots because uh, we have to shoot two of them simultaneously. So that big battle at the end, that big battle at the end, I, I counted something like 45 of the shots are miniatures. Um, well, in in science fiction film circles, I would have to say that the confrontation between Ripley and the Queen is one of the great effect sequences ever. And uh, I mean, you generally feel the weight of that creature and of course that was your your little creature and pretty impressive well the big fall the big fall the big smackdown uh whatever could not be done full size that was uh out of the range of what could be done with those big you know those big uh mechanical uh creations so um yeah, we had talked about doing uh, some of that with um, stop motion originally, which I was not a fan of. I, I thought it would have a too different of a look. So Jim dropped that. Uh, thankfully, and he, he he dropped that idea. Um, so you know, stuff in the egg chamber and the uh, that final battle world well the miniature. I mean, you know, there was a full-size queen, uh, but it could, you know, it couldn't walk. It couldn't, you know, you couldn't see it in a full shot actually walking. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, it was all amazing stuff, both a full size. I'm not taking away from this at all. I mean, the two worked together. How, how, are, how are you maneuvering that miniature? For instance, when the miniature is... Um, pulling its way away uh, in the egg chamber when it rips its way away from its egg sac and starts to maneuver how are you how is that being maneuvered if you're not using stop motion are you is this kind of an animatronic effect how is that well there's cables that run up into it to you know operate the the, the hands and the arms uh, there's also rods behind it um, the whole pulling apart from the egg sack is my personal lifetime nightmare of the worst <laughs> shot I ever had to work on. And um, again, that could fill a book just describing all the problems of trying to do that. And it's beyond me, my ability now to express. It, it sort of became legendary of how, how such a simple thing became so difficult to do. I'll leave it at I'll leave it at that. Maybe it'll go with my own. Well, yeah, the 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 um, final uh, word is that it's such an effective scene. You feel the pain and the energy that the way that it all comes together is just so so uh, visceral. And then, of course, I guess you also have that same miniature working in the elevator, correct? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, heading toward the elevator, there's a shot that one that I particularly liked, and I remember just getting it by the end of our teeth. The one where the 
queen is heading toward the elevator and uh, kind of come smashes forward into the foreground and kind of yells into the camera. And I was being told, I can't do another take. There's no time. There's no time. Lunch is being called. And I said, let's do one more take. Need to do this. I was not happy with this thing coming down the hallway. And I really wanted it to just, you know, scream into the camera and the take that's in the, you know, we must have done a zillion takes and it just didn't work. Um, uh, you know, so the take that's in the film is, is uh, that was right before lunch was called. You know, thank God I got one more in. And, you know, I was like pretty bullheaded at times about this stuff. But, you know, there were a lot of people who were just saying, this is going to cost, this is going to cost, you're going to, you know, the constant battle. I mean, that whole movie was a battle against money. Uh, that It was a low-budget movie for for what it had to do it was a very low budget movie it should have cost a lot more and it was only done because the people who were key people who were involved in it had gone through the Roger Corbett school of you know desperation I guess <laughs> well it, it, it's it's it, it's so beautifully realized and uh, I know we could talk about it for hours uh, I think that uh I saw it on the Fox lot that year. They had a special screening. I got invited, and I took a friend of mine who generally didn't go to the movies much, and we were just riveted. It's just, uh, I mean, for, for an old war movie fan like me to marry that to the fantasy of, of this science fiction world, LV-426, it just all came together beautifully. And... I think Cameron uh, obviously commanded this in a magnificent way, and your work is just so, so beautifully seamless. At times, you don't realize you're in a miniature, and um, uh, just great work, Bob. And, and well, I, re I really, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, uh, you know, anybody who works on these things, I, I'm no exception. You know, I see all the problems, and I was like, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back. And, you know, we had the plug pulled a few times on shots that weren't, I wasn't at all happy with, but I go on, you know, nothing I can do. We pushed the limits on this. Um, but I'm glad, you know, in the middle of this, because it was such a horrendously difficult experience for everybody, it was truly. Um, there were people who worked in the art department uh, over at Pinewood who had done all these films for decades and decades, and they were reduced to tears. And they said, this is the hardest thing they have ever done in their life. I mean, this was like really excruciatingly difficult. Um, and for all the, re all the reasons why, you know, you could fill volumes, I mean, there was just every, um, every possible difficult challenge was all all there and uh you know with more money and more time um it, it would have been easier it still would have been difficult i think jim makes complicated movies that are never easy but this one was particularly excruciating um well, and, um, you know we kept telling our, we kept telling ourselves look uh you know it, it i mean based on the script it's going to be a really good movie it'll be worth all this effort. The uh, the approach to the um, derelict spaceship when they're in that kind of that well, I don't even know how to describe the terrain. It's a very alien terrain. Um, uh, the the whole atmosphere there is just overwhelmingly 
creepy. Um, was that was that shot on a sound stage with the live action performers, or was it out in some kind of uh, desolate area? No, it was all done on a sound stage or done in miniature. Um, you know, we we had shot the you know miniature plates and miniature backgrounds in in the states uh, with with the original derelict, and then part of it we rebuilt a big large section for uh, you know, you know, at Pinewood. Uh, a part of it was built full size with the Jordan tractor. Uh, you know, uh, uh, for the live action part of it. Um, there's a hanging miniature that uses our large miniature uh, that, that helped bring all of that together. Um, and, and you know what's very frustrating is all that stuff was cut. The whole colony complex that was some of the hardest, most expensive stuff we did on the film was the colony complex and the Jordan tractor scene where they go out to the derelict and that stuff was cut. Uh, for the main release of the film, um, and that was a, you know, boy, if we if we hadn't needed to do that, the job would have been so much easier. <laughs> um, so I'm glad there was a long version that some people have. Oh yeah, in. yeah, the, the, that that was just uh, just fascinating to watch. Uh, tell me about Oscar night. Uh, tell me about. Uh, I know this is kind of a silly thing considering we're talking about the ultimate creative experience, but I have to ask you what it was like to get your name called. Well, it's going to sound kind of lame, but it was nice. I mean, I, I didn't really care at that point. You know, uh, the, the year before somebody mentioned, oh, you know, see you at the Oscar night. And it was never a thought at all. I was surprised, like, they're going to nominate this for an Academy Award. Um and, you know, I was glad, obviously, it, it happened, you know, for all the work. Um, it was never a particular goal, so that was just a bonus, you know. It was, it was uh, nice nice to get that. I can't complain. Um, that may sound like what's with him. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think a lot like, like Jim Cameron's just so busy making movies, you don't think about the – that other part of it, uh, right, right, and it, you know, it's a passion to make movies. It's it's totally about that. That's the reward. And like, I hope the work is good enough to pass muster. Hope somebody likes this. That's more important. Well, I think I wore out my uh, uh, my TV watching Aliens, uh, and whenever it would be uh, on one of the premium cable services, and I I'll always stop by and see it for a few minutes. It just it was just uh particularly the the uh battles between the marines and the aliens were just just so riveting to me and uh, yeah another scene that was cut uh from the release print was the sentry guns holding those corridors did you were those sentry guns uh live action real or were those miniature no that was real and uh i was up in my, those were shots. Uh, that little um, uh, sequence, little, uh, was shot right below me, below my office, uh, and was very difficult to listen to because I was drawing, I was sketching out some miniatures at the time, and I got, you know, these things would blast away, 
I think it was off of G stage, and I was up above G stage uh, at the time. This stuff was going up, and it was just rattling my nerves. Of like, what? You know, what's going on? Will they stop reshooting, reshooting? And you know, it was one of my favorite scenes. That whole idea of these guns just being, you know, um, overheating from firing and trying to stop these alien bodies from pouring in. I thought, what a great idea, but. But it was just annoying me when it was actually done, because <laughs> I was trying to draw. I was trying to draw, and it was—I mean, it was so loud. This stuff was incredibly loud, just blasting away. So, uh, so, so uh, where, where? That is, was John. That was John, that was John Richardson's uh, department. You know, all that sort of uh, explosions. And so, um, where is the Sulaco today? Uh, Sulaco resides at Bob Burns' uh, little museum. Oh, okay. Along with uh, dropships and uh, all kinds of other stuff. I had talked to Jim, and I, you know, when the film was winding up, I suggested, you know, Jim didn't know who Bob Burns was. So I said, you know, this stuff, uh, you know, rather than just being tossed away, it should go to Bob Burns. He's the one who's the big caretaker of all this. So that's where all that stuff wound up. Does he also have some of the miniature aliens? He has, uh, I think one queen has survived. I guess one of them melted down. I, I, was, you know, I was thinking I was going to get one of those, but I never asked. Uh, I never went over there to get it, and I guess it just was rubber disintegrated, so I didn't get a hold of it. Uh, there were three of them all together. There was a fully articulated queen. There was one that was partially articulated that was done in England, and there was a floppy, um, again, just for falling out of the airlock. Which is which is one of the more satisfying moments in science fiction film history when it gets thrown out. I, I thought that was fabulous, although there's one moment in the movie which, of course, for me didn't make much sense, but it was very riveting when Ripley's holding on and the queen grabs her foot. Yeah. And it's so funny because it, the, that, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, poetic license probably was repeated a few years later in the Lord of the Rings movie with Gandalf when he's, he also gets his, uh, his leg trapped in the whip of the creature. <laughs> so, but it works so beautifully. Um, uh, just, just well, there was a whole, I guess there was a whole merchandising thing related to her shoes that what she was wearing, but don't ask me about that i remember there was something about what she was wearing was some sort of a kind of a deal but um yeah well i you know i had a whole different idea on on how she should defeat the queen but i'll save that for another time well this has been quite fascinating and uh you've been involved in so many interesting projects and of course you won another oscar a few later a few years later with cameron on Terminator 2, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that another time too, but um, we've been listening. You, know, you want to ask me about, I, I want to mention, by the way, my involvement now with uh, the up and coming Invaders from Mars uh, Blu-ray. Yes, please, please talk a little bit about your uh, Invaders from Mars project, which sounds quite fascinating. Well, you know, uh, the, the short version of a long story is that, you know, I did a retrospect about the film back in the 70s which uh, made the original producer of, of the original Invaders from Mars interested in pursuing a sequel 
to which I made drawings, which led to a sequel being made, um, but this, which I was not involved with. I went and did Aliens instead. Uh, but this whole Invaders from Mars thing has kind of stuck with me. It's a, a film that was very, very influential in my life, largely because of this, uh, Menzies' design work and the mood of that film. Uh, but the original camera negative has, uh, was found, and uh, Scott McLean has done a restoration, and they, uh, the people, Ignite, Ignite Films, which is releasing the Blu-ray uh, in September, uh, did an interview with me uh, about a month or so ago, um, and uh, then I'm doing a book. Uh, about uh, the making, uh, it's an expansion of my original article. So that'll be coming out after the first of the year. So I felt I should mention that because it's, that's what I've been very involved with in the last uh, month, a uh, couple of months. Well, your, your attention to detail and your preservation of these stories and interviews and background on classic science fiction films is exemplary. I think we're kindred spirits. We. We started covering the, the science fiction films about the same time, me with Cinefantastique and you with Fantasy, and I think that's when we first met. And uh, I think um, uh, this stuff is it needs to be preserved, and you're doing it in a really good way. Um, and thank you for Well, that. thank you. And you certainly have had a huge, huge share in, in doing that. We parallel each other, and you've done remarkable, remarkable work in that area, too. So... Uh, um, you know, it's all good. It's all good stuff. And, and like you say, uh, amazing stories that should be preserved. Absolutely. Well, we've been listening to Robert Skotak, uh, who is not only an Academy Award winning visual effects artist, but a, a preeminent film historian. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm Steve Rubin. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Uh, we'll see you next time.